0: listening to the podcast series for Women Vision SC 2020, a production of South Carolina Public Radio. I'm Linda O'Brien. We'll hear interviews from some remarkable women from across the state. They were nominated by our listeners. Join us now with one of the 11 Women of Vision SC. This week, we talk with Melissa Burnett, an award-winning attorney and advocate of equal rights. In 1977, she received her law degree from the University of South Carolina. She went on to litigate landmark cases that have changed laws and lives. She has waged legal battles that opened the door for young girls playing contact sports, for young women entering the once all-male citadel, and for marriage equality in South Carolina. Welcome, Melissa Burnett. You have a slogan in your law firm, Moving Law
1: Forward. What does that slogan mean to you personally? Well, we thought long and hard about that slogan. We wanted it to represent what we wanted to do, which was to break ground on new law whenever we could to benefit the most people possible. And uh, we've done that a few times. And, you know, we're very socially conscious That's what it's about. Let's begin with your life as a teenager. And I
0: understand that you stood up to the Ku Klux Klan as a waitress
1: at a North Carolina truck stop. Tell us about that. Well, when I was 18, I was spending the summer with my grandparents in a small town in North Carolina where I was born. Back then in 1968, in this small town like in everywhere else in the South, Uh, The black people who wanted food would have to come to a little side window to be served. And um, black people did not come in and sit down. And a lot of lunch counter sit-ins were taking place across the country. And one day, a black trucker came in and sat at the counter. And I was working there that day. And I thought to myself, he looks hungry. So I, I took his order and served him. Everybody in the place was quiet. All conversation stopped. And the owner of the truck stop came over when I gave him his food and took a paper plate and turned his plate upside down and made him eat off a paper plate. I guess to his credit, that was a compromise. He didn't throw him out or do anything. And the gentleman sat there and finished his meal, paid and left. But word got out about what I'd done. And the KKK that night put up rally posters all over town to have a KKK rally in the county. Uh, against your action? Well, um, I don't know if it was prompted by that, but I suspect it was since they came over to the restaurant the next day to threaten me and the the owner ran ran them off. But I noticed that the rally posters were on utility poles, which I knew since I knew everything when I was 18, I knew you (laughs) couldn't couldn't post things on utility poles. So I walked around town before I went in for my shift that day. took down the rally posters and was carrying them around, walking around town and trucks were following me with KKK members in them. And I recognized some of them as my classmates from elementary school. And, you know, it was kind of sad and they were threatening me. So when I went in that afternoon, a lot of them showed up and that's when the owner ran them off and, Later that day, some of us went to what literally was a swimming hole in town. This was a real tiny town. And I was being taunted by some of them and some little little boys, you know, eight, nine years old, calling me an in-lover and all that, which was a terrible insult then. And finally I said, yes, I am. And they didn't know what to say. And that was a defining moment for me, is that don't be defined by what other people expect of you, just be yourself. So, they didn't know what to say. They shut up, and and you weren't fearful was, during this whole period. I was fearful that they threatened to burn down my grandparents' house where I was staying. I was worried about that, but they didn't do anything after that. After I said yes, I am, and then what happened after that? Um, nothing else happened after that. They went away, and I. It was and I. I guess I was lucky. I should have been more afraid, probably, but you know, youth has no fear. It could have been worse. And maybe because some of the KKK members were my former classmates, I think they might have had some respect for me. I always treated everybody okay. They just left it alone. It could have been worse. It could have been a bad outcome. But I think what I took away from that at 18 years of age is be yourself and speak out against things that are wrong. And if you're lucky, things can change. And don't be afraid. How did that then inform your career
0: as an attorney, as someone who fought for rights of many people?
1: Well, I think it taught me to take risks. And right after college, instead of deciding immediately what I wanted to do, I became a prison guard to get a real life experience and or to annoy my parents. (laughs) I'm not sure which was the greater motivator. But it really was an interesting experience. I was at the old women's prison and I learned very quickly that most of the women in prison were poor, had very low education, and here in South Carolina they were teaching the women to cook and sew. They couldn't support their families, and yet they were teaching the men in prison to weld, to be carpenters, and even to take classes at the University of South Carolina. And that really got to me. I also found out that a lot of the women in prison were victims of domestic violence. And I was incensed and that led me to law school. And I said, I got to get some education where I can change things. Were you able to make any changes at that women's prison, which was in South Carolina? Right, I talked about it and I talked to uh, Bill Leek, who was the director at that time. And he said, I know, he says, it needs to change. Did it ultimately? He he was a good guy. I think it has changed a lot, although of course the prison system is, is a big mess and it's very difficult. So that
0: experience then prompted you to go to law school and why did you feel that it was important to go to law school at that point?
1: I think that having a law degree allows me to represent people who otherwise could not make changes on their own and I can be an advocate for them and help get laws changed that are inequitable and uh, or to assert someone's rights under a law that does exist when they can't get their rights asserted otherwise.
0: What are some of the three or four cases that are most memorable to you?
1: Mm, Well, I think one of the most fun and interesting cases I had was in the mid eighties when Tara Bailey's family came to me. She was from Gaffney and she was in middle school and she was a football player. And the coach wanted her to play, but after a certain age, the high school league said girls couldn't play football. And she was a really good player. So the parents wanted me to help along with the ACLU. And we challenged that on equal protection grounds under the 14th amendment. And that rule no longer applies. So now girls in public school can play contact sports. And so that throughout that rule, and that's why girls can now play contact sports in public schools. What
0: was the original thinking of why girls couldn't play contact sports? It was
1: a protective law to protect girls from harm. Well, girls don't need somebody to be paternalistic. They can make a decision for themselves whether or not they would like to play contact sports, just like boys. Another case, of course, was the marriage equality case that we handled in uh, 2014. And South Carolina was not the last state in the union to get uh, marriage equality, not even the last state in the South, because we achieved that in 2014. And uh, it was affirmed in the summer of 2015 in Obergefell versus Hodges at the Supreme Court. And that was a very exciting case, which, of course, we worry now about whether that can be challenged at the U.S. Supreme Court. You know, no rights are safe. We have to constantly defend and be vigilant about all rights uh, because they can be taken away. And that's why it's important to vote and elect people who will protect your rights and appoint good judges. What kinds of cases do you think will be most important going forward? Well, there still is, I'm a certified specialist in employment and labor law, and that involves everything from discrimination of all kinds to wage disputes, the whole gamut assaults at work. And there is still a great deal of discrimination at work based upon stereotypes of what people can and cannot do. And I haven't seen that change a whole lot since I started in private practice in the early 1980s. The types of discrimination changed over the years. Sexual harassment remains very prevalent. Uh, There's still people who don't understand what that is, and what it means and how it affects people and their entire families and their whole world. Uh, still a great deal of race discrimination, discrimination against the LGBTQ community, transgender individuals and disabled people. And now as many people who are older continue to work, there's a lot of age discrimination in the workplace. So um, in in my practice, I'm, I'm still seeing a lot of that. But this despite the
0: laws, even on a federal level that have come forward to protect rights, especially in the workplace. And in addition to that, movements like the Me Too movement have really put a spotlight on these issues of
1: sexual harassment, for example. Some of the, or most of the discrimination laws were passed in 1964, and some a little bit after that. Just because a law is in place does not automatically enforce it. Employers need to be educated about what their responsibilities are, and some of them don't want to follow the law anyway, so it still takes individuals enforcing their rights to make it happen. Uh, the sad state of affairs. Are you worried about the current state of affairs? I, I am, and that, that is why it is so important for people who uh, believe in equality of all, to vote, Don't don't think your vote doesn't matter, every vote counts, to study the positions of candidates and get out there and vote every single chance you have, because lawmakers not only make laws, but they appoint judges all the way up to the Supreme Court. And they, and judges can do things and and decide cases that last many generations. Another case
0: that you took the lead on involved the Citadel and uh, a young woman who wanted to enter the Citadel when it was all boys, all men. How did you overcome
1: that barrier? Well, there were many lawyers involved in that. It was a long case. Um, Shannon Faulkner, of course, was the lead plaintiff in that, but at some point she could not tolerate it any longer. Her, she was just being tormented, her family was being threatened, and sh- she j- just had to get out. And the family of Nancy Millette stepped forward and, and said, we don't want to see this case stopped. There needs to be a plaintiff because it's in danger of being dismissed. So Nancy Millette was, I was representing her family, to substitute Nancy as the plaintiff so that the case could go on. And Nancy had gone I and mean, was in a military high school in North Carolina, had come, came from a wonderful military family. So she became the substitute plaintiff so the case could continue. And in fact, she did become the substitute plaintiff and we saw it all the way through until the a VMI case was decided. And finally, South Carolina had to give up the fight and concede that they had lost. What was your argument for this? Well, why, why was it important? Uh, equal, equal protection. Here's a state funded school that was denying education to young women whose family were paying taxes to fund this state school. If they wanted to go to a private school, that was all male, fine. But this was a state funded school. And there are young women who wanted a military career And the irony of it all, at least at that time, was that although the Citadel was a military school, only a third of those who graduated actually went into the military anyway. (laughs) So it was kind of strange. So from that time
0: forward then, women were allowed. to have been admitted and done very well. You are constantly advocating for people. That could be exhausting for many people. Where do you get your
1: energy source? I get my energy from compulsive eating. (laughs) 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 But I I really get my energy from family, my husband, my daughter, who I'm so proud of. She is a lawyer, a new lawyer in my firm. But since she was little, I would go home literally when I was all stressed out and play with her. And when you're playing with a little kid, you don't think about anything else. So that was my source of releasing my mind. And that has made a big difference since I originally didn't want any children. <laughs> but I found out that having family helps. And whether it's your real family or the friends that have become your family, I think interactions with other people who you love and who love you can make a big difference. What
0: about also the the fact that you're in a courtroom often and whether you win or lose,
1: that this has to be a feeling of achievement when you win a case. Yeah, well, that is true. And many cases are won in the legal briefs, whether or not you get to stand up in front of the judge, but however they're won, it certainly is a high for a little while. And then you sort of are exhausted, just like anything else where you go, 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 and it's great, and then you just collapse for a little bit, but then you look for the next thing.
0: But but what is it about representing a client, especially one who has faced discrimination
1: yeah. and to see a real change that helps because, you know, there some clients are really aggravating and don't care what you've done. for them. But I can think back to a number of clients where I've done something for them and I didn't think I did much, but. They might write me a note two years later and thank me and tell me how much it meant to them. And I just burst into tears. And I'll keep that note and that'll keep me going. And it might've been just something minor to me, but it made a difference to them. If I think that somebody appreciated what I did. Well, and I'll and pull it, them out and read them when I feel bad. And it
0: sounds as though a number of the cases where you have represented clients, it's made a difference in their lives, but it's made a difference in a lot of other people's lives too.
1: Well. The one thing we like to do, not just me, but others in my firm, is find cases that not only help the person we're representing, but will set a precedent so it helps a lot of people. And we we try to do that, and we like to take cases like that because it will change a law. And I think a lot of hearts and minds have been changed. I thought when we did the marriage equality case, I would get a lot more hate mail and flack, but Actually, I heard from people who I hadn't seen in a long time who said, thank you for doing that. My nephew came out at Clemson and thank you for doing that. I said, I had no idea. And I got more nice notes than hate mail. How do you go about selecting a particular case? Many people who contact me for representation may perceive they have a legal case because something very unfair has happened to them. And it's my job as a lawyer to do the best I can to evaluate that case, to determine whether a law has actually been broken or whether there is something about a law that I think I could challenge effectively. And unfortunately, sometimes things are unfair that we can't do anything about. And it's my job as a lawyer to try to do my best to understand that and to explain that to the potential client. Because there are many unfair situations that the law allows. So, to get a good case, you have to find. I have to find one where there is actually a constitutional violation, or or a statute that has been violated, and the facts have to be really good. And I have to look for any downside, anything that the potential client might have done to contribute to the problem too. So it's it's a matter of evaluation. So there's a
0: lot of research that goes into a case before you even decide to go forward. Absolutely.
1: I have to do my due diligence. I don't want to bring a case that's frivolous or that could backfire or where, you know, it's just going to do the opposite of what we want it to do. And I, I be very honest with my clients. I said, I want to know the good, the bad and the ugly right now from you and not from somebody else. I don't want to find it out in court so tell us about your years growing up
0: and um, if there was one individual who influenced you a
1: teacher or parent someone who made a big difference i've been very fortunate to have adults who influenced me as a child but i think the one who influenced me the most was my maternal grandfather he spent so much time with me one-on-one. I had a big family, I had four younger sisters. My parents were very busy and we lived in a small rural town, but my grandfather was a small farmer and he would just take me in his truck and spend time with me, he taught me to fish. He was the most positive person. He treated everyone equally, this back in the 50s. He was kind to everyone. And what town was this? Morven, North Carolina. This is a Scottish settlement. And he was a good role model about how you treat people and care about people. And we'd go to poor black families' homes and he would take clothing and so forth. And not everybody would do that in the 1950s. He treated everyone like family and he was generous and kind to everyone.
0: Was there a teacher as well who
1: had an impact on you, one particular teacher? Many, it's hard to say, uh, from elementary school all through high school especially, but one who stands out is Miss Essie Davis, my fourth grade teacher who had taught my mother and and this grandfather. So back in the day, (laughs) those teachers probably started very young, but she carried a ruler (laughs) And she's wacky. Uh, But uh, uh, we didn't have any air conditioning. I had 11 classmates, two of whom never wore shoes. Uh, Very poor town. But I learned so much from her. It was a very poor place, but she made us learn. And she cared about everybody, every student in that class and would do whatever she could to make sure that every student would learn. And my father was a doctor, but she didn't treat me any differently than the student sitting next to me who had nothing. So it seems from your early years, you were observing
0: this with your grandfather and then right. with your teacher of treating people equally. Right,
1: right. And, that and it became made, made your... an impact on me.
0: Mm-hmm. That, that was the thing to do. And so if you were to say, if you, if we were to ask you about a lifelong vision,
1: what would it be? Be true to yourself, be genuine. Don't worry about others' expectations of you because that will just cause a great deal of stress. Try to figure out who you are and go that
0: way. Uh, This series is looking at leadership. How would you define leadership
1: and what makes you a strong leader? I think some might say I'm too rule oriented <laughs> sometimes. Um, well, you are a lawyer. <laughs> I know I can't help <laughs> But encouraging others is very important rather than talking down to others. Sometimes leaders need to lead from behind rather than in front and lift others up rather than trying to pull them along, get behind them and push them. And how do you do that yourself? Find out what the strengths are that people have and help them believe in themselves so that they can get out front. Work-life
0: balance is something that many women face. How do you overcome those issues?
1: Who said I overcame it? <laughs> it's been a struggle. But how do you address those uh, issues it's re- is a better question. Um, it, it has been a struggle and I think the younger generation and I hope the younger generation will do better. I have been very, very fortunate to have a partner in life, my husband, who did not have to work the hours that I worked, although he had tremendous responsibilities. And we were able to partner in raising our daughter and running a household and yet spending time together and doing things we enjoyed. It's much harder, I think, for female lawyers who don't have that type of support and partnership. What are your biggest workplace challenges? The bottom line, being a business person, um, they don't teach you much of that in law school because it's running a business. And to helping um, budget and doing all the things you want to do but still watching the bottom line is tough. So in, a, in- in
0: addition to practicing law, you're building a business, I, you're managing a if business. If I could just
1: practice law and do what I wanted, that'd be great fun. But you still have to watch the bottom line and be a business person and be practical. And also remembering that I need to um, be responsible for my practice, be responsible for the people in my practice, make sure that they are being nurtured, that I'm mentoring the younger lawyers in the firm and do all those things first before I go do my pro bono work to do the things that I want to do. You know, I need to prioritize. So you really prioritize
0: your, your firm then I have and to the people that. there. Mm-hmm. What would your advice be
1: for a young person today? My advice for a young person would be, I think some of the same advice I got, that is find out what your dream is, aim for that, but know that you might have to do a lot of other things first. It's not a straight line. You might zigzag until you get there, but those are just life experiences and you build on it. And don't forget to take those opportunities and try different things because it will just enrich your life. But keep, keep that dream out in front of you, but don't forget to learn from all these other things that pull you aside. Was there one point that you thought you may not be able to
0: achieve your dream or one big challenge that could be considered a turning point? Well,
1: there have been health challenges for me, health challenges for people in my family. There have been times I have thought, "Oh my gosh, you know, I'm just going to have to stop and stay home." But no, kept going, <laughs> kept going, and it works out.
0: You have talked about the right to vote and the need to exercise that right. And mm-hmm. in 2020, we do mark the 100th anniversary of women's right to vote. Right. Tell me about that anniversary and what it means to you and why it's important.
1: Well, it is an anniversary and an important one, but South Carolina did not ratify the 19th Amendment until 1969. It is the second, I think, the second last state to do that. In other words, did not put their stamp of approval on it until 1969. Women were voting in South Carolina, but it was like South Carolina finally begrudgingly said, okay, I guess that's all right, so so we'll ratify. We need to remember that although the 19th Amendment passed long ago, people of color, women and men, really didn't have freedom to vote. And there's still challenges to that. There's still barriers to that. In this state and all over the nation, There were roadblocks early on, they have been falling, but the reading tests, the other tests that were given to try to prevent blacks from voting, and black women especially, even after the right to vote was passed. So white women got the right to vote, but it wasn't so easy and still isn't so easy for people of color. And what is your view of South
0: Carolina as far as uh, the laws that you often deal with and
1: represent people? We're, we're coming along. The Pregnancy Accommodation Act was passed in 2018, much to my surprise. So every now and then we we get a win. And what does that do for us? Um, it amended the Human Affairs Law to help women who... Are pregnant, have some accommodation so they can t- continue working and not be forced to stop working due to stereotypes about pregnancy and so forth, which is, that helps the whole family. We have fought back some of the draconian bills about LGBTQ people, um, that's still gonna be a fight. And yet we still are facing these awful efforts to, to ban abortion. And that is against the will of, of the majority of people in South Carolina. And yet there's some really terrible bills that have been introduced and that is gonna continue to be a fight in South Carolina. And yet there is a very vocal
0: and fairly large group of people who who believe in right to life.
1: Well, it's very vocal on both sides for sure. But the polls show that the majority of people believe that a woman should be able to control her own body. Thank you very much, Melissa Burnett. Thank you so much.
0: You've been listening to Women Vision SC, a podcast production of South Carolina Public Radio. You can find video stories and other resources on know-it-all and scetv.org. The producer of Women Vision SC for South Carolina Public Radio and the podcast series is A.T. Shire. William Richardson is the producer-director of the television series. Zhao Yu is associate producer and Becca Turner is production assistant. Tyora Moody is web manager. Bobby Kennedy is director of special projects. For SCETV and South Carolina Public Radio, I'm Linda O'Brien. Thanks for joining us.